In his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, Chuck Colson reflects on his experience in the Nixon administration. At one point in his memoir, he writes, you know, one of the things about us is that we thought we were running the world. Colson speaks about one meeting with Nixon and Kissinger and other top-tier officials. Kissinger opening up the meeting by saying, gentlemen, what we do today will determine the future course of history. And then writes Colson, while I was sitting there in the White House, goose pimples kind of ran up my back and I thought, boy, I'm really important. I'm determining the future history of the world. But looking back on that experience from a prison cell, I realized how utterly arrogant and wrong it was. It didn't matter. We were not determining the future history of the world. That was in God's hands. You know, friends, one of the recurring themes that stood out to me, and I hope it stood out to you in the course of this study through the book of Daniel, is the fact that God is utterly sovereign, the fact that God is actively directing the course of human history according to his predetermined purpose and plan. When we look at our world today, when we scan the news headlines, we very often see the unbridled arrogance of humanity playing out before us, the nations raging, the peoples plotting, the kings of the earth setting themselves up and taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Fallen man has somehow convinced himself that he's in control of his own destiny, that he's his own savior, that he is not accountable to the God of the Bible, but as the inspired psalmist has put it, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Truth be told, there is only one sovereign ruler in this universe. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Vladimir Putin. It's not Kim Jong-un. It's not Justin Trudeau. It's not anyone else. It is Yahweh, the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present Lord of heaven and earth. And this morning, as we continue into chapter 11 of this marvelous Old Testament book, we are going to be reminded once again that the wickedness of man can never overturn the purposes of our sovereign and holy God. If you brought your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you did bring it, turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11, listen carefully, I'm going to read this chapter from God's Word. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be richer than all of them. And when he has come, become strong through his riches, he will stir up all, all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. His authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her, he who supported her in those times. And a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He shall deal with them and shall prevail." He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. 
Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. He shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hands. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. He shall cast down, down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south and and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. The forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall, shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom shall bring to the terms of agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall return to face the coastland and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall, be put, shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. He shall become strong with small people. And without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his, and his heart against the king of the south, the great army. The king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. As for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Ketim shall come against him, and, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, shall take away the regular burnt offering. They shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, 
and made white until the time of the end, for it still waits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and of all the precious things in Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with fury to destroy devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we saw the final three chapters of the book of Daniel are dealing with one single vision. Chapter 10, introducing the vision. Chapter 11, giving us the prophetic details of the vision, and chapter 12, bringing this vision and the rest of the book to a final conclusion. This is by far the longest and the most detailed part of the book of Daniel. You'll recall from last week that this concluding uh, vision came to God's servant during a time of great discouragement and spiritual turmoil in his life. It has now been about two years since Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued that decree allowing the Jews to go back to the promised land. But now the news is getting back to Daniel that things aren't going very well for the returned exiles. Powerful enemies are rising against him. They are are hindering the rebuilding of the temple. The 70-year exile may indeed have come to a formal end, but the 70 weeks of Daniel's vision have now begun and the suffering of God's people is still very much a painful reality. The initial bubble of optimism is burst and in response to all of this bad news back in Israel, this elderly statesman is feeling discouraged and weighed down. For weeks now, Daniel has been fasting and praying, abstaining from all the luxuries of palace life as he seeks the face of God and ask for his mercy. Now at long last, God's answer has come to Daniel in the form of an angel who touches him and who speaks gracious words to him, who strengthens him for the vision he's about to receive, a load of prophetic details relating to some of the previous visions, but now given to us in far greater detail. Now friends, I'm not sure how you felt when I read that chapter out loud a few moments ago, but I can tell you this. When I read that chapter earlier this week in my study and started preparing for this sermon, I thought that I might need an angel to come strengthen me and to help me wade through all of these details which can seem so perplexing, so overwhelming, and yes, even at times can seem somewhat tedious. 
We read a chapter like this one with kings coming from the north and other kings coming from the south and marriage alliances being made and broken, all kinds of obscure detail. And we wonder what a chapter like this is doing in the word of God at all and how any of this information can possibly relate to our lives in the 21st century and to the mission of the Christian church. This is a difficult chapter to preach, and especially when we read the words of one commentator named Leupold who says to all of the pastors reading this this book and preaching on this chapter, Leupold says this chapter might be treated in Bible classes, but we do not see how it could ever be used for a sermon or for sermons. Not very encouraging. And I'll admit to you, friends, at the beginning of this week, when I started to look at the chapter, I was very tempted to gloss over it and to continue on into chapter 12, but I was convicted not to do that because I believe it betrays a wrong attitude towards the Word of God. In the New Testament, we are told that everything written in the Bible has been written for our instruction. And when God says everything, He means everything. Every chapter, every verse, every line, every word. Yes, even the fine prophetic detail that we find in this chapter. Now, we may read this chapter and wonder what the relevance of these verses are, but we can't deny that divine truth is contained within them. And the very fact that this is the longest and the most detailed section in the book of Daniel ought to drive that point home. God did not put these words in the Bible for no reason. And if God saw fit to send an angel to fight against a demon for three weeks in order to deliver this vision to Daniel and then to preserve this vision for centuries so that we could read it today, it seems to me that Professor Leupold is misguided. God wants this chapter to be preached. God doesn't want this chapter to be hidden away out of sight as material that is interesting for certain historians but irrelevant for the average Christian. Now, our first impressions of these verses may not be entirely positive, but in reality, this is one of the most amazing chapters in all of the Bible. And ironically, it is all of the fine details that you and I tend to find so tedious that makes this chapter so amazing. I think the temptation here for many of us is to assume almost subconsciously that we're reading here in chapter 11 some kind of a historical record about events in the ancient world, but it's critically important to be reminded this chapter does not belong to the genre of, of history. It belongs to the genre of prophetic, uh, of prophecy or predictive prophecy, and that difference is critically important to understand. There's a big difference between history and prophecy, and it's simply this. Historians look back on events that have already happened, and they give us a record of, uh, uh, of those things, an interpretation of those events. But prophets look forward in time towards events that have not yet occurred. And from Daniel's perspective, in the year 536 B.C., when he wrote these words down, nobody knew who these people were. Nobody knew who the king from the north was. Nobody knew who the king from the south was. But now nearly 3,000 years later, you and I can hold this chapter in one hand, we can pick up a history book in the other hand, and we can be astounded by what we discover. One Old Testament scholar has calculated that at least 135 of the prophetic details written down in this chapter have been fulfilled historically right down to the very letter. And friends, let me tell you, when it comes to predictive prophecy, you will not find any other chapter in all of the Bible that comes even close to this one in terms of the sheer density of prophecies that are fulfilled. 
Even the most hardened skeptic and atheist read this chapter and see within it an accurate description of events that happened between the years 536 B.C. and 163 B.C., events that are clearly recognized when we read the writings of the ancient historians. The detail of this vision, the accuracy of this vision is astounding, and that undeniable fact has polarized readers into two different camps. On the one hand are the skeptics who don't believe in divine revelation, who therefore insist this chapter must have been written by an imposter long after these events had taken place. And then on the other hand are genuine believers like you and me who perceive in these verses a remarkable demonstration of God's omniscience, God's exhaustive knowledge of the future which he chose to reveal to the prophet Daniel. By the way, the only reason God can have exhaustive knowledge of the future is because of this doctrine of meticulous sovereignty that I've been talking about week in and week out. The fact that everything that happens in the universe happens by divine decree and that nothing happens outside of the realm of God's sovereign control. Exhaustive knowledge of the future goes hand in hand with meticulous sovereignty and you cannot logically accept one of those and reject the other. Now, for some non-believers, this chapter, with all of its many details, simply confirms them in their own unbelief and skepticism. But for me, and hopefully for you, this is a chapter in God's Word that will cause you to marvel at the wisdom and knowledge of God and to be confirmed in your conviction that the Bible is indeed a divinely inspired book. Though it may be possible to approach a chapter like this one by just hashing through all of the historical details and the prophecies and fulfillments, I'm not going to put you through that this morning, but I would certainly encourage you this week to dig deeper into this chapter with the help of a good study Bible or a good commentary or history book, and if you're interested in history, you will surely learn some things about the ancient world in which Daniel and the exiles lived. But instead of heading in that direction this morning and giving you a detailed history lesson, I want to speak in more general terms about what all of these prophetic details are driving at. And that is the the truth or the reality of Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist in our world. The first 35 verses of this chapter can be summarized by the word Antichrist in the plural while the final nine verses of this chapter can be summarized with the word antichrist in the singular. The first half of this chapter, we have antichrists. In the second half of the chapter, we have antichrist. And so with God's help, that's where we're heading in the remainder of our time this morning. First of all, a reminder of the reality of antichrists in the world right now. And secondly, a glimpse into the future at yet another antichrist who is yet to come. You know, this distinction between antichrist in the plural and antichrist in the singular is not something I thought up in my study this week. This is a distinction that comes straight out of the Word of God. In particular, it comes from the first epistle of John where both terms are used in a single verse. First John chapter 2, verse 18, the inspired apostle writes, Little children, it is now the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. I think many of us who have grown up in evangelical circles hear the word antichrist and our minds immediately gravitate towards the so-called end times, towards that mysterious biblical figure who will one day rise up to persecute the church of God as a prelude to Christ's return. 
We have grown accustomed as evangelicals to think about Antichrist in the singular sense, but I want to suggest to you this morning that we don't often think about this term enough in the plural sense, in the wider sense of the world. We don't often associate the term Antichrist with the reality of evil that is all around us in the world right now. As some of you probably know, in the book of Revelation, the activity of Antichrist is closely connected with the activity of the dragon, the rampage of Satan, as he rages against God and rages against the church of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. It can be traced back to the devil himself, an angel named Lucifer, who attempted to usurp the authority of God and who then tempted our first parents to join him in that rebellion. The spirit of Antichrist is nothing new. It's as old as the fall itself. And in in the Old Testament, we learn about many Antichrists who have come and gone with the passing of time. The book of Genesis, we encounter a few of the earliest Antichrists who tried to interfere with God's plan and design. Men such as Cain and Lamech, the men of Sodom and the architects of Babel. Some of these Old Testament antichrists like Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Antiochus Epiphanes come from pagan and Gentile backgrounds, while other antichrists such as Korah and Jeroboam and Manasseh were from the Jewish ethnicity. Many of the biblical antichrists were men, but a few like Jezebel and Queen Athalia were women, showing us that wickedness is not gender-specific. And when we flip over to the New Testament, we find many more antichrists on those pages, such as Herod and Pilate, Annas and Caiaphas, Judas, Nero, Titus. Every one of them agents of Satan. When we look beyond the pages of Scripture into modern history or into current events, the spirit of antichrist is evident in the Hitlers and the Stalins of this world, in the communists, the Maoists, the white supremacists, the ISIS terrorists in this world. You and I tend to associate Antichrist with future events that are yet to occur, but the biblical record shows us that the Antichrists are already here. Now they have been here for quite some time, ever since Genesis 3. When it comes to the biblical teaching about the Antichrist, some of us need to reframe our way of thinking, and the book of Daniel is very helpful in this regard. Back in chapter 7, you'll remember, I hope, the vision of the four beasts coming up out of the sea, each one of them representing a diff- the spirit of Antichrist as embodied by a different world empire. The first beast being Babylon, the second Persia, the third Greece, and the fourth one being Rome. Now, as, as I explained a few weeks ago, when we were studying that chapter, these four beasts portray the spirit of Antichrist in ancient history, and they point us forward in time to yet another beast described in the 13th chapter of Revelation, a multi-headed beast representing the ongoing reality of Antichrist in every generation while pointing us towards the final Antichrist who is yet to come. As I've said many times throughout this sermon series, God is giving these visions to the prophet Daniel not to stimulate an idle curiosity about the future, but rather to prepare him and to prepare God's people for the reality of suffering and trial and tribulation in the world. And over the course of this sermon series, I've tried to make the case that tribulation is not limited to some seven-year period of time in the future. Tribulation is a reality of life in this fallen world for all of God's people in every age. Modern Christians love to speculate when the tribulation is going to begin when all of the evidence seems to indicate that the tribulation is already here. 
that has been here for quite some time. In the year 1974, Corey Tenboom, who was a Dutch survivor of the Nazi concentration camps, wrote a letter on the subject of tribulation, and here's what she said in that letter. Corey says, in America, the congregation sing, let us escape the tribulation. But in China and Africa, the tribulation has already arrived. This last year alone, more than 200,000 were martyred in Africa. Now, things like that never get into the newspaper because they cause bad public relations. But I know, I've been there. We need to think about that when we sit down in our nice houses with our nice clothes to eat our steak dinners. Many, many members of the body of Christ are being tortured to death at this very moment, and yet we continue right on as though we are all going to escape the tribulation. Disagree with Corey Ten Boom if you wish, but I think she's right on target. We are now living in an age of tribulation that is governed by the spirit of Antichrist and we see the evidence all throughout the scripture. We see the evidence all throughout human history. We see the evidence every time we turn on the news. During the first century, God's people were thrown alive to the lions in the Colosseum by the Antichrist of their generation. During the Protestant Reformation, Christians were burned alive at the stake by the Antichrists of their generation. In Maoist China, Christians have been methodically hunted down and imprisoned by the Antichrists of their generation. And in the country of Nigeria, our brothers and sisters in Christ are being tortured and slaughtered even as we sit here in this room. Tribulation has always been the plight of God's people and it will continue to be so until the very end of the age when God takes that multi-headed beast, when he takes that great dragon and throws them both into the lake of fire where they will suffer eternally. That verse I quoted earlier from the Apostle John, the Apostle tells the readers, it is now the last hour. He wrote that back in the first century. John and the other apostles believed they were living in the last hour. And we've got to believe that too. We are living in the end times. We are living in in an age of tribulation dominated by many antichrists who have come and presumably many more that will still come. Now here in the 11th chapter of Daniel, we are covering much of the same historical terrain that we looked at previously in chapters 7 and 8. But the vision... But the vision here is given to us in much greater focus and detail. Verses 1 to 2 of our current chapter focus in on Persia and the ancient kings who would rise up after King Cyrus, leading up to King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, who had reigned during the time of Esther and Mordecai. In verse 3, the focus shifts from the Persians to the Greeks with yet another description of Alexander the Great and his incredible military conquests. In verse 4, we have yet another prediction of the fourfold division of Alexander's empire, which we already talked about back in chapter 8. And then between verse 5 and verse 20 of the chapter, we have this extraordinary description of the power struggles between two of Alexander's successors, the kings of the north who represent the Seleucid rulers up in Syria, and the kings of the south who represent the Ptolemaic rulers down in Egypt. Between the years 323 and 175 BC, much of the experience of God's people in the land of Israel was influenced by these two world powers as Israel found herself both politically and geographically sandwiched in the middle. 
Sometimes Israel was under Syrian control. Other times Israel was under Egyptian control. Israel was basically a pawn in this power struggle between the northern Antichrist and the southern Antichrist. Now moving further down the page, page in verse 21, we meet someone who is, is named a contemptible person. This is none other than Antiochus Epiphanes, the northern king in Syria who was previously introduced to us as the little horn back in chapter 8. Now, I've described Antiochus in previous sermons. He was one of the great persecutors of the Jews during this period of history. He was a man who embodied the spirit of Antichrist during these tumultuous years. Antiochus was on a mission to destroy the religion and worship God established in Israel, forbidding circumcision and the observance of the Sabbath, outlawing the reading of Scripture, setting up a statue to Zeus in the temple, even sacrificing a pig on the altar of the temple, the ultimate sacrifice and abomination for God's people. The horrific persecution instigated by Antiochus is forever impressed on the Jewish memory. And in the New Testament, Antiochus becomes a paradigm for the spirit of Antichrist. Even Jesus himself making reference to this past persecution as he looked forward in time towards future times of persecution, namely the destruction of the temple and the arrival of another Antichrist, Roman one this time, named Titus Vespasian. Now, friends, the point here is not to memorize all of the historical events that happen during this era of history. The point is to see the big picture that God wants us as the church to know. And here are the big lessons that we need to learn. The first one is that tribulation and persecution have always been a painful reality for God's people. The second one is that the spirit of Antichrist is very much alive and well in the world today. God sent these visions to the prophet Daniel to prepare his covenant people for persecution. And I believe that that same preparation is desperately needed for the North American church today, especially considering the fact that we have not suffered very much. We must be alert to the spirit of Antichrist in the world around us. We must prepare ourselves for persecution and suffering and tribulation. And so, brothers and sisters, that is the main application for this chapter. This chapter is a call for the people of God to prepare for tribulation, to see the reality of Antichrist in the world, so that we will not be shocked and surprised when tribulation comes upon us. The main emphasis here in this chapter, as in all of the Scripture, is not on the future possibility of suffering, but on the present reality of suffering. A lesson that Daniel was coming to understand through experience, but also through the medium of these visions. But all of this being said and emphasized, we must acknowledge the fact that the Bible does not merely speak of many antichrists who have already come. It also speaks of the arrival of one final antichrist a mysterious figure who will rise up at the very end of this present age in order to unleash one final round of persecution upon the church. Now the Apostle John speaks about this Antichrist in the verse I quoted earlier, but the clearest description of him we have in all of the Bible comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read these words about the future Antichrist. Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, 
proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Although some of Paul's teaching here about the future Antichrist is hard to understand, many things that he tells us about this man are fairly clear. To begin with, Paul emphasizes the fact that this final Antichrist will be a lawless person. In other words, he will have no respect for the law of God or for the covenant that God has made with his people. Secondly, we're told this final Antichrist will seek to usurp the true worship of God by proclaiming himself to be God, thus leading people into idolatry just as Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Thirdly, we learn in these verses that Antichrist will take his seat in God's temple, most likely not a reference to a literal building in Jerusalem, since that building has long since fulfilled its purpose and been destroyed. But I believe, like many other Christians do, that this is a reference to the church, the true temple of God. In some way, the Antichrist will establish himself within the church and will gain a foothold among false believers, just as Adolf Hitler did in the churches of Nazi Germany, using religion and Christianity as a means to undermine and attack the true worship of God. Fourthly, we're told this evil man will be able to perform miracles through the power of Satan and that God will send a strong delusion upon the non-believers so that they will be duped and taken in by this deceiver. And then finally, we're told Antichrist will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus himself, killed by the breath of his mouth and brought to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And so in brief, this is the New Testament teaching about the future Antichrist. In the context of this letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is giving this description of Antichrist as a visible sign that must take place before the Lord Jesus returns. And that is yet another indication from Scripture that the church will not escape any future period of tribulation, but rather that the church will see the arrival of this Antichrist and will experience the persecution that he unleashes. The Bible does indeed teach about a final Antichrist who will rise up as a prelude to the second coming of Christ. And in Daniel 11, we get yet another prophetic glimpse of this lawless and wicked man. Now you may be interested to know, in Daniel 11, scholars of all theological stripes, whether liberal or conservative, are agreed that verses 21 to 35 are are a description of Antiochus Epiphanes and his reign of terror. But when we get to verse 36 in this chapter, there is a wide chasm of disagreement. Unlike you and me who believe that this chapter was inspired by God and written down by the prophet Daniel during the 6th century BC, many skeptics and liberal uh, theologians believe this chapter was written much later by an unknown Jew who lived through the persecution of Antiochus and then wrote a record of past events. 
According to this liberal or skeptical view, verse 2 to 35 provide an accurate description of past events leading up to the persecution of Antiochus. But when we get to verse 36, they say, this unknown author tried his hand at prophecy and failed miserably. These liberal scholars believe that verses 36 to 45 were an attempt to predict what would happen during the final years of Antiochus' life, but ultimately that this so-called prophet failed since we know from history that Antiochus did not end his life in the way that these verses say he did. We know, for example, that Antiochus did not turn away from the gods of his fathers, as we read in verse 37. Historically, Antiochus remained devoted to the Greek gods until the very end of his life. We also know that the battle described in verses 40 and following did not happen during the reign of Antiochus, that he did not die next to the Mediterranean Sea, as verse 45 states, but rather that he died in the Far East fighting against the Parthian hordes and that he was killed by a painful disease of the intestines. And so in the light of these so-called discrepancies, liberal skeptics believe that the final verses of this chapter are riddled with errors. And sadly, that is a view that destroys confidence in the inspiration and authority of the Bible. You know, friends, I'm happy to tell you this morning, there is a perfectly good explanation for these final verses that practically all evangelicals accept, and that is the fact that in verse 36 of this text, there is a shift in the prophecy from Antiochus to the final Antichrist. There is a shift from type to fulfillment. As conservative, Bible-believing Christians, we believe that these concluding verses are not an inaccurate description of Antiochus, but rather that these verses are speaking about a different Antichrist who has yet to come in the future. In fact, the very same man we just read about in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Just like the final Antichrist described by Paul, the figure described here in Daniel 11 is a lawless man who will rebel against the one true God and will turn away from the God of his fathers. And of course, this corresponds with Paul's description of Antichrist exalting himself in the true temple only to turn against it and to try and destroy it. We also learn here in these verses that the final Antichrist will be a warmonger that he will honor the God of fortresses, that he will pursue a military agenda, and that his military ambition will culminate in the great battle described in verses 40 to 45. And once again here, this is not a battle that happened in the distant past. This is a battle that will yet be fought when the Lord Jesus returns. It's the same battle that's called elsewhere in the Bible, the battle of Armageddon. Unlike the skeptics who try to use these concluding verses to attack the credibility of the Bible and to show that the Bible contains errors, I believe these verses will be fulfilled in the future. And I also believe that that interpretation is confirmed by what we read in the first few verses of chapter 12. I'm just going to read those verses. It says, At that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So all of a sudden here, we have this teaching about the final resurrection. 
Now, I'm going to have more to say about those verses next Lord's Day, but for now, I just want you to notice the way that chapter 11 telescopes events that happened in the distant past with events that are yet to happen in the future at the time when our Lord Jesus returns to this earth and the dead are raised to stand in judgment before his great white throne. You know, brothers and sisters, I wish I could tell you this morning that everything written in the Bible is happy and encouraging and uplifting. The truth is that some of the things we read in the Bible are a bit unsettling. That's especially true when it comes to this subject of tribulation and antichrist. The circumstances of this life can sometimes be very discouraging. And from our limited human perspective, evil sometimes seems to prevail over good. Satan sometimes seems to be winning the day. But the good news we all need to hear this morning is the same message that God sent his angel to deliver to the prophet Daniel so long ago, that wicked men do not hold the world's destiny in their hands, that they do not hold our eternal destiny in their hands, because there is a good and a loving and a sovereign God who towers over them all, working all things according to the counsel of his will. And so, Christians, the Bible's teaching about Antichrist should not make us fearful about our present circumstances or about the future. Rather than frightening us, these predictions about evil in our world should sober us. They should give us a strong resolve to stand for Christ in our generation, just as Daniel stood for Christ in his generation. For as verse 32 tells us, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. May God in His grace and kindness make us into men and women just like that. Amen.